wandering She's been wandering When we're going down to the riverside Welcome to Cheese Underground Radio. I'm Jeannie Carpenter. Thanks so much for joining us. This week we travel to Uplands Cheese near Dodgeville, Wisconsin. We catch up with farmer Scott Marika and help him bring in the cows for evening milking. Plus, we talk with Uplands cheesemaker Andy Hatch about the difference seasonal milk makes in Pleasant Ridge Reserve, Rush Creek Reserve, and a new cheese he's working on. Stay with us. Love Cheese More. This episode of Cheese Underground Radio is sponsored by Fromagination, Madison's premier cheese shop, located in the heart of America's Dairyland, right on the Capitol Square. Fromagination's team of expert cheesemongers help you select the perfect cheeses and companions for every occasion. Shop online at Fromagination.com, or better yet, visit Fromagination and taste the cheeses that make Wisconsin famous. Fromagination. Love. Cheese. More. Located on scenic Highway 23 between Dodgeville and Spring Green, Uplands Cheese is one of the best-known farmstead cheesemakers in the nation. Its flagship cheese, Pleasant Ridge Reserve, is the only cheese in America to ever win both the U.S. Championship Cheese Contest and take best in show three different years at the American Cheese Society. Uplands is run by partners Scott Marika and Andy Hatch. Scott is the herdsman and Andy is the cheesemaker. Together, they produce seasonal milk and seasonal cheese, two incredibly uncommon commodities in the United States, a country where everyone, it seems, wants their favorite food year-round. So we're walking out um, to get the cows yep. here at your farm. Yep. So why don't you introduce yourself and sure. tell us who you are. Uh, my name is Scott Marika. Uh, you're here on my dairy farm, uh, Grass Dairy and Uplands Cheese in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. Um, we are about to go get the cows for the afternoon milking. And uh, yeah, we're milking uh, a little over 200 cows. And we're kind of in the nice part of the season when things are kind of mellow and just grazing and milking and projects and okay. no, no breeding, no calving. Is this live? No, it's dead. Okay, good. We're going under electric fence here. I'd hate to get electrocuted on my, <laughs> on my visit to the cows. <laughs> Might be some four-letter words on your podcast. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you know, so the system is kind of mellow right now and <clears throat> just kind of enjoying some family time and, and uh, trying to catch up on things that we haven't didn't get a chance to do in the springtime. And sure. most of my hay is done. Maybe have one more cut of hay and and then, uh, yeah, life's good. So, so. your so your role on the farm is you you are the herdsman. Yep. And you're doing the crops. Yep. So okay, I guess I would I would call myself in the partnership. And he's a cheesemaker, and I'm the. Farm I, was, I was gonna say, well, you're, so, you're the <clears throat> farmer, dude. So most farmers, <laughs> you know, most farmers don't get a chance to own their milk market. This is true. You know, in a sense. So I I can, as being a farmer who who owns a value add cheese plant. I have a way of controlling my milk price and the volatility, which is really important for a young family trying to go of this with lots of debt, not much equity, 
And so you figure the value add as aspect of this whole thing is kind of what pays the bills. Um, you know, because conventional milk prices, they can be good and they can, you can make, make money on low cost production. But for somebody like Andy and myself, it'd be hard. And it's nice to, you know, to, to an extent, control your price. Sure. And because um, I feel like most farmers are going to, most farmers are going to do a good job of milk quality and, and they almost have to, to to stay competitive in the market. But we have to do an even, an even better job as you know owning the the final product right because you're you're making world-class cheese out of your out of your milk <laughs> don't tell the cows that <laughs> okay. oh, so tell me tell me about this grass what are we what are we walking through so right now i'm doing about a 35 day rotation on the farm um meaning that i'm using about a 35th of the farm every day for the grazing for the cows and the goal is to put the cows in at about 22 2400 pounds of dry matter per acre and take the cows off at about 12 to 1400 pounds of dry matter per acre which they could have they could have eaten this down a little bit more but what's so cool about grazing that you don't see in a tmr herd is that the cows have such a selection of feed you know in one paddock you've got five types of grasses three types of clovers chicory plantain you know all kinds of other things there might be finding lamb's quarter you know young pigweed you know sometimes cows eat weeds it's fine they're mm -hmm. full of nutrition if they get it the right phase you know phase of growth and so you get a, a lot of diversity in the paddocks and that's what's important too for the system is because we're not a monoculture you know we're not growing one crop and expecting it to thrive year after year it's a polyculture so it's all working together and maybe one year the clover doesn't do as well and the grass does better or one year the grass doesn't do as well and the clovers perform better and, or the legumes and um, so you get a lot of different stuff going on in the soil profile too you have different root depths you have different root depths and um, you've got different you know requirements for nutri for nutrient take ups and, mm -hmm. and the, also on the legumes fix nitrogen too so you get the nitrogen benefit you know the, the benefit benefit of that but um it's just fun it's, it's fun to see the grazing system because it's not a perfect system it's you know constantly improving or trying to improve at least <clears throat> and um but it's cool to see the cows harvest their own feed and spread their own manure i mean that's basically what we do i, I you know all my neighbors say oh make four, five crops of hay or four crops of hay but you know what, this is my fifth rotation on the farm and mm -hmm. I've been harvesting grass since end of April. And so I'm able to harvest grass in all types of weather. And um, so this is kind of like your fifth crop of hay right here. Yeah, Except you didn't have exactly. to go to all the work of None cutting work. it and letting yeah. it dry and raking it and baling it and then put yep. it in the barn. Exactly. The cows sort of did all that. Cows have done it and then and they're, they made it into cheese and put it in the cheese caves. So <laughs> good job, cows. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> and. Um, but it, it's fun, it, and I think the cows enjoy the rotational grazing because they're they're used to the routine. They're used to always changing paddocks, and they're always used to being um, kind of pushed to eat a little bit more. Mm. Like it's not the same routine every day. They don't get they don't go from the barn back to the freestall to eat TMR in a headlock, but they go from the the parlor and they go back out to a paddock that they might have to explore and go different places, and they sure. get excited about it. Yeah, you know, and sometimes they get a little sluggish when it gets hot, and but. For the most part, the cows are really excited when you shift brake wires. They usually come running and torn, you know, ripping towards you. So how many acres of grass do you have? Uh, on this block here, we have just over 300, well, if you consider one of the farms I rent that's up to my farm, 340 acres. Wow. And then I've got another farm that I rent for heifers. And, um, and we have our young calves custom grazed by a neighbor. Okay. And so, um, but it's fun. You know, I really enjoy it. I enjoy grazing a lot. Yeah. 
So we're so we're standing in the pasture and the cows are starting to look at us. What would what would you do right now if we weren't here? Would you call them? Would you walk over there? Or what would you do? Well, usually I wouldn't be walking. I'd take the dirt bike. Oh. And, and then they usually when they hear the bike and they know it's about time to come uh -oh. to the shed. So we're screwing up the. No, it's fine the though. They, they'll get up and come. They'll be excited to get up and drink some water too. Um, but yeah, usually I just come and give them a whistle and say, "Come, boss!" And they kind of start moseying over. <laughs> They're not really They're moseying, not Scott. We might have to walk towards them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might have to put some pressure on Jeannie. Oh, use, no. Use those, uh, those farm girl skills of yours. I don't know. It's been a long time while, since yeah. I herded some cows. But. Although we do seem to have their attention now, at least. They're, they're looking at us. So how, how many cows did you say over here? 202 cows and two bulls, 204. Okay. Total. And so I'm looking at this herd of cows and they're all different colors. How many, how many breeds and, and crossbreeds and everything do you have happening here? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I think in the past there was an emphasis on these French breeds. They didn't have a lot of reliability in the sires. Ah. And I've gone back to a more uh, Jersey cross cow that's probably two-thirds Jersey, one-third Frisian, two, or you know, three more, more Jersey than Holstein Frisian. But I use a lot of genetics from New Zealand um, because the Kiwis are, they've gotten very good at producing low-cost milk. Um, from grass and making milk solids from grass. Okay. And cows that are easily easily managed and very fertile, um, moderate size. Basically, what I'm looking for is a, a, a 900 pound cow who's short and stocky and can walk the whole farm without a problem and come into calf quickly. Because being seasonal, so our farm is 100% seasonal, meaning that the cows are calf from March till May, and then um, they all dry off in about sometime in early January, depending on the weather, maybe earlier or later. And that's really unusual in Wisconsin. For Wisconsin, yeah. yeah. In New Zealand and Australia, you find that system a lot more common. Yeah. Um, but here, but here, it seems like almost every farmer milks year round. They they're, yep. they stagger their dry cows, so they always has, always have milk. Yeah, but I you, probably I think three or four friends I know are seasonal, but not many, not very many of us. Yeah, I mean, out of like nine thousand dairy farms, there's a handful of you guys. Yep, and I think you know, being in New Zealand, being seasonal. Is cost effective because you can feed a dry cow for next to nothing because you're still great you, you still graze that cow and you can graze standing crops like kale or swedes or turnips but in wisconsin obviously truthfully my winter costs are pretty high because if i'm buying feed or using my own homegrown feeds um, i still have the labor to feed the hay and all that so i kind of lose that competitive edge that they have in new zealand mm -hmm. because of the winters being longer but that's why i've really focused on fertility of the cows because i need the cows to come into calf quick I needed them calf, calf quickly. I wanted about 85 to 90% of the cows to calve within the first six weeks of plan started calving. Okay. And so that's what kind of determines my profitability outside of the cheese plant. You know, just trying to produce, get as much milk out of the cows as I can get from the system while keeping my costs as low as possible and, and providing the cows, a, you know, everything they need to be healthy and happy and producing high quality milk. Gotcha. But, but you know, it's, we don't have the, not that, I, not that I don't think, you know, confinement farming is, is people do it really well. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, sometimes the cows are actually even more comfortable in confinement farms than they are on a grazing farm because I'm expecting my cows to go outside in every weather. They're, they're never inside for any day of the year besides when we milk them. Mm -hmm. And so they have to be outside when there's a blizzard. They have to be outside when it's 95 degrees and humid and hot. So it's, you kind of... That's a trade-off. Yeah, it's a trade-off. Yeah. So if I was to say, oh, pasture farming is perfect, it's a lie because it's not. But at the same time, confinement farmers never give a chance, never give a cow a chance to be a cow. They never get a chance to go outside and, 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 and explore, or, you know, 
it's always the same thing, always the same TMR, same routine, and maybe they last three or four lactations and then they're done. And how many lactations do your cows go? Well, that depends. Right now I'm milking lots of young cows, okay. and I usually get a 10, 12 cows, 10, 12 year old cows. Okay. So you get nine, 10 lactations out of a cow. Yeah. And you really don't make money on a cow until she's hitting her second or third lactation, in my, in my opinion. Really? Because, you know, you've got all the cost of raising a heifer, which is a big, big amount of money. And then you, um, you know, she only has one lactation and then she's, she's open or she's problematic. Then you're kind of, I mean, you just hmm. lost, lost a bunch of money on the cow. Right. So, yeah. So <clears throat> it takes basically, uh, what, four years for a cow to pay for itself? I would say uh, about two, two, two lactations. So yeah. she, had, yeah, she calves at two years, you know, she's two years old. Right. 15, 15 months or 24 months or something like that. Okay. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's important to try to keep them in the herd as long as possible. And so I'm not, I don't feed a lot of grain. I, I feed probably about, well, 5% of the ration is from grain. They're getting about seven to 10 pounds a day. And they're eating probably, you know, with the number of cows and the cover of the grass, they're probably eating 35, 45 pounds of dry matter from the paddocks. Okay. So, so what's going to happen if we walk right up to them? I don't know. I don't, it's <laughs> been a while since I walked to get the cows. I don't know if they're going to respect with, us or not. With three, we'll with three people. <laughs> They'll come up and go. They don't, they, they don't seem very agitated, though. No. Usually, sometimes in the afternoon, they're, they're happy to come to the barn because they get a little bit of shade and yeah. some water. And they, know, they also know it's time for a fresh meal, too, because they're going to go to another paddock at nighttime. Oh, sure. I stagger the paddocks, so they always, in the daytime, they go to one, and in the nighttime, they go to another, another one. And that way I kind of throw the flies off too. So mm. whatever flies hatch out here in the next day or two, the, cow, the cows will miss them. And the flies are like, where are the cows? And they'll go somewhere else. That's pretty brilliant. It's not my idea. I got it from somebody else. <laughs> yeah, but that's pretty, that's I really think I, smart. I think it works 90, 95% of the time. Yeah. But we also use, you know, like these like little like wasps and stuff for the flies. Mm -hmm. And those really help keep, with the, keep the populations low. Okay. But... Flies can destroy a grazing herd because if cows, cows need to be, to, to be an efficient grazer, they have to be comfortable and they have to be able to um, stay motivated to eat. And once they get agitated or, or they feel threatened by anything, whether it's weather or flies or, or humans, they bunch up. And then once the cows bunch up, then you have health effects from that. I like to, when, the, when the cows are spread out and grazing or laying down, I don't think there's a time I'm happier. Mm. My wife is always complaining that I'm always looking out the window. I'm like, damn cows are standing in the corner and like I go I what I usually do when they bunch up I, us, I usually make a smaller paddock in the daytime and then I give them another fresh break to kind of encourage them to eat again okay because like in a, in a TMR herd you might put people like push up the feed you know so the cows will mm -hmm. encourage them to eat again mm -hmm. and we kind of do the same thing with brake wires and fences sure and so that way we kind of can push the cows maybe to eat a little bit more than they normally would by them by their own volition okay and um but yeah it's 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 always a work in progress and um you know, we're lucky we have some financial stability from the cheese plant that some other young farmers may not have. But at the same time, you know, you're also paying for the cheese plant. I mean, it's not like it wasn't free. So. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's so on the way. It's like, well, but in terms of building equity, Annie and I, have, we do about 10%. We can build about 10% of our equity in a year. Okay. Which is really good for, yeah. for young people like us. Yeah. And, um, so how old are you? I'm 30, 31. Oh, gosh. I'll be 30, 32 in a couple of days. Well, happy birthday yeah, in a couple of days. You. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. I bought the farm when I was 28. I had, had my first, I bought, I bought a farm, got married, had a kid all in the first year, first year when I was 28 years old. So it was kind well, of. That wasn't stressful. No, at all. it wasn't. It was a little bit of a learning curve, but we're hanging in there. <laughs>
At this point, we look up at the sky and see a thunderstorm is headed our way. So we let Scott do his thing with getting the cows in. They know that his whistle means it's time to head to the barn. Yeah, you feel the pressure changing? Yeah. You don't have to get yeah. We stand off to the side, and the cows slowly start filing past us on the way to the barn. It's not raining yet, and one of them, a dark cow named Coco, walks right up to me and demands attention. she's got compared to her, her her friends you know go go you stop but she's a really sweet cow though yeah but she was this way when she was a calf too she's like okay i'm done here i'm done i'll get more scratches when i go in the parlor yeah. everybody we have like you know every year i i told myself i never have pet cows and i feel like every year i get three or four more pets and the more yeah. names and by, by the time my kids are old enough we'll have every cow have a name and it's like now I can't sell any cows <laughs> this is true after we get the cows up to the barn we head into the cheese plant where cheesemaker Andy Hatch and Esther Hill have a table filled with dozens of plugs of Pleasant Ridge Reserve Andy and Esther are evaluating several vats of cheese and invite us to participate. We take our time because it's August, and that means Andy's not making his seasonal cheese, Pleasant Ridge Reserve. That's because August here is usually hot and dry, and neither the grass nor the milk usually hits his exceptionally high quality standards. So Scott and Andy instead sell the milk to another cheese factory this time of year, and they take time to work on other stuff. Scott builds fences, and Andy does things like talk to Cheese Underground Radio. So we just walked through the pasture and brought your cows in, and that was pretty awesome, and learned about the seasonality of your milk. So um, maybe do you want to talk a little bit about what what the seasonality of milk means to you as a as a cheesemaker? Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, like a lot of these issues, there are a couple ways to look at it. Um, you know, when I'm feeling uh, cheerful about it, I, you know, you, you have kind of poetic thoughts where you think of, uh, you know, preserving the, the bounty of the, the summer almost, you know, we make cheese seven days a week and the cows are in a different pasture every day. It's almost a, a log, a record of the season that you go back and look, you know, look at a year later, bottling the time, basically. Um, and that's a beautiful way to think about it. I mean, uh, 
Um, and it's, you know, for a farm like us to be competitive in the cheese market, we need to do whatever we can to be distinctive because we're not going to compete on marketing dollars or cost of production. And so, um, you know, preserving a seasonal milk supply from our own cows, our own pastures, you know, and another way of looking at it is as a competitive strategy and that it's giving our cheese the most distinctive flavor we can. So those are two ways to look at it. Another way to look at it, more, more technical way, is that it's really challenging um, because not only does the milk change somewhat day to day as the cows are rotated through, through different fields, fat content jumps around quite a bit, but also it varies dramatically um, throughout the, say, six-month cheese-making season. Um, all of the cows are you know, on the same lactation cycle, and so their components you know, will vary uh, incredibly between, you know, we've, it looks kind of a bell-shaped curve, say. So, you know, early milk, mid-season and late-season milk are all very different. So that presents a lot of technical challenges of how you make consistent cheese with a raw material that is in motion. So you're making, uh, when, do you, when do you make your first wheel of Pleasant Ridge in, in the spring? We sort of let the cows tell us when they're ready. So they'll calve out in the pastures. Uh, and we'll be feeding them hay because this starts late March, uh, you know, through April. Uh, and then as uh, the grass comes up, they'll, you know, eat less hay, more grass, less hay, more grass. Eventually, they'll just ignore the hay altogether. Um, and then we'll wait, you know, another two, three days, let their bodies adjust to that all-pasture diet and then start. So this year was May 2nd. Last year was May 5th. Um, it's been as early as April 13th, the drought year, 2012. We were saved really by an early start. Okay. And then this time of year in um, late August, are, are you taking a break from cheese making? Yeah, we're currently are. And that is always, August is a bit of an, you know, an unknown weather-wise. Anybody who lives here knows that. It can be really hot and dry, often is. Um, in which case uh, the pastures dry up, the cows are under some heat stress, and we prefer to just park the cows in the shade, feed them hay, and, and in that case we'd sell the milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this year actually, I mean, we've had so much rain, the pastures are beautiful right now. We ended up taking a break from cheese making simply because the caves were full. It would have been nice to keep going. Yeah. So, um, you know, May and June predictably are, are lush. And that is, I mean, we make a lot of cheese then. The cows are in peak production. The fields are, you know, in peak production. And that usually continues through about mid-July. You know, we reliably make 80 days in a row. And then do you start, um, do you make more Pleasant Ridge in the fall? Yeah, and then, you know, exactly how Rush Creek season fits in depends on, you know, weather patterns and, um how much Pleasant Ridge we were able to make earlier in the season. Okay. Um, and Rush Creek is usually available from like Thanksgiving to a little after the first of the year. I mean, like retail. That's right. that's when I'm used to buying it and, right. so and it consuming us, large amounts of yeah, Rush Creek Reserve. It leaves us starting early November okay. through the week of Christmas. Okay. So do you have a period of milk then that you have open that you're thinking about trying to work on something new? Yeah, there are... Um, Really, three, even four periods of milk where, where that, that still leave the farm. The first is 
uh, April when all the cows calve. Um, and the, the second or the fourth, maybe you could say, is the, is the very back end of the milking season, December, early January. And that very early late lactation milk and the late lactation milk are not as appealing for, for making cheese. Uh, nothing wrong with it really, but you know, in the spring the cows are all just calved, their, their metabolism is sort of evening out, the diet's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similarly, as their lactation is winding down, metabolism can get wonky. And uh, So those two periods um, are, you know, not all that attractive for, for cheese making. Uh, the next, you know, obvious period um, is this late July, early August, where we typically take a break, feed the cows, hay, midsummer. Um, in most years, that's anywhere from three to four weeks. Um, and then... Um, the fourth period is, is spans the Rush Creek season into, say, November. Uh, the, Rush Creek is, is so labor-intensive, we can't or have not yet figured out how to um, turn a full day's worth of milk in, into Rush Creek. Simply too many pieces to handle. Yeah. Uh, so we sell milk while we're making Rush Creek. There have been years when we've made both cheeses at once, and uh, we haven't done that in a while. and not apt to try again. Yeah, it's, it's simpler to serve one master, and as the cow's diet changes, we like to change the cheese with it. Um, but uh, it's possible we could use that, the rest of that milk on a Rush Creek day to do something else. Uh, and then when we stop making Rush Creek, you know, uh, Halloween-ish, the milk in November still is, is really beautiful. There's, there's still some grass to be had, um, you know, really nice dry hay, and... Um, so that's milk we're looking at too. So really there's a chunk in August, late July, early August, there's a chunk in November, and then there's a scattering throughout the Rush Creek season. Um, very different milks, the August and the November milk. Mm-hmm. So do you have uh, like experimental batches stowed away that you're, that you're uh, monitoring? Yeah, right now? <laughs> No, we have... Um, oh, man, I thought there was like, going to be some secret curtain somewhere. Oh, there was, and, but, you know, we're, the joke is when we have time, we don't have milk. When we have milk, we don't have time. So uh, <sighs> we made a, a run of uh, trials last November mm-hmm. with that milk, and uh, those are all, you know, come and gone. And... Um, How were they? Uh, we were happy with them. Can you tell me, yeah. like, was it a hard cheese, a yeah. soft cheese? It was a small, they're small formats, um, soft cheeses. Okay. And, um, uh, Like, did you eat them all? Where did they go, Andy? <laughs> <laughs> I want details. I, yeah, well, no, I mean, suffice <laughs> to say, the advice to give to every beginning cheesemaker is to buy pigs. Oh, man. Um. Okay. So, I mean, we, we do, you know, there are only so many times in your career as a cheesemaker where you're actually at the drawing board and you can do all sorts of goofy stuff. So sure. we'll do all sorts of goofy stuff. Sure. Um, as much to see if something sticks as, as to just um, have fun. Because once you um, hone in on a cheese and you know the market has expectations for it, now you're, now you're talking about just a life of um, refining and, and tweaking. So to be at the drawing board and try a bunch of different stuff is fun. So shapes, we were, we were playing around with pyramids and triangles and squares and rounds and um, it was fun. Um, 
uh, and you know we learned a certain amount about cultures and ripening techniques and uh, I mean there are obviously once you start looking at milk chemistry a lot but even once the milk enters the plant there are four or five sort of layers of variables you know mm. cultures and then the, the cheese making technique and then of course the ripening technique size shape and all those you change any one of those and everything else has to adjust so the number of variations gets large quickly um, so that yeah a lot of balls in the air we'll I think this year we'll uh, we'll use last year's trials and narrow it down pretty quickly. We know okay. a little bit more what we want, um, but uh, you know, there's there's what we want, and there's also what the market wants. <laughs> Not always the same thing. And how selfish can you be? So. Well, you I know, don't know. You, I mean, you have two world class cheeses now. Maybe you can be selfish and make a cheese that. You like? I, no, I, I, uh, I'm in love with Pleasant Ridge. Really, oh. I wouldn't make anything else. Mm. Um, and and maybe we won't in the long run. But I, I think I think there's there's milk there for a third cheese, milk that's not ideal for either of the other two cheeses. And um, I don't want to be compelled to grow for growth's sake. But it's pretty low hanging fruit when it comes to growth. You know, milk leaving our farm is is not. Uh, you know, it's not profitable. And, um, so uh, I think we'll get there. The facility mm -hmm. itself has to um, catch up. We need to expand. We're packed full as it is. So um, you need, need more changes. need more aging space? Mm -hmm. That's the bottleneck. Okay. Yep, no. Um, what I saw the, the trailer out here. Is this like dry storage or what's what's happening out there? Yeah, this is temporary dry storage. We're okay. knocking down that shed just south of the creamery, oh. and we're putting up a kind of an adjunct cooler okay. and dry storage here. So that that adjunct cooler will, will hold wrapped cheese. Okay. There's such a big bubble of cheese that moves through here, October, November, December. Yeah, you know, every, as you know, yeah. everybody's sales are up. So Pleasant Ridge, and then this big bubble of Rush Creek comes through. So we simply need a place to, you know, stage wrap. So cheese. much cheese in such a small time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I gotta say, you're, it's August and you're still looking good. Usually by this time of the year, I try to feed you cookies because you're so thin. Yeah, well, come back in a couple of weeks with cookies. Um, sure. <laughs> it's the mom in me. I must feed everyone. If you're interested in reading more about the cows, the grass, and the cheeses made at Uplands Cheese, visit my blog, cheeseunderground.com. Our program today was produced with the help of Uriah Carpenter, who, like Steve, one of my favorite customers at Metcalf's, enjoys himself a wheel of Rush Creek Reserve, or two, or three, or nine. I have one guy that comes to a lot of my classes. He buys a lot of cheese at, uh, at Metcalf's. His name's Steve. We're going to give a shout out to Steve. And uh, last year, he ate 11 Rush Creek Reserves. Oof. So wow. this year he's gonna he's gonna team it back you to should, nine. You tell him, tell him to call me for a job. <laughs> Our theme music was composed and performed by Point Five, one of my favorite local bands out of Mineral Point, Wisconsin. And it doesn't hurt that cheesemaker Andy Hatch plays mandolin in the band. 
So that's it for today. Next week, we give you a front row seat to what it's like to sell cheese at one of the largest farmer's markets in the nation. We help Tony Hook and his crew set up the Hook's Cheese Stand at the Dane County Farmer's Market, arriving, well, before the crack of dawn to help unload a truck full of cheese, tables, and tents. Until then, you can connect with me on Facebook, search Cheese Underground, or follow me on Twitter, at CheeseGeek. Have a great week. Love cheese more. This episode of Cheese Underground Radio is sponsored by Fromagination, Madison's premier cheese shop, located in the heart of America's Dairyland, right on the Capitol Square. Fromagination's team of expert cheesemongers help you select the perfect cheeses and companions for every occasion. Shop online at fromagination.com, or better yet, visit Fromagination and taste the cheeses that make Wisconsin famous. Fromagination, love, cheese, more. I get, the first thing I gotta say, sure. and we can walk, sure. is that like you're the first farmer I've ever seen wear shorts. Shorts, really? Yes. Yeah, all summer long, I, I like wearing pants every once in a while, but it's like living in Wisconsin is the only, only so many months a year we wear shorts, might as well. <laughs> So, anyway. Well, you pull it off. Thank they you. go yeah. well. They go I well use, with nice I, boots. My, my, everybody makes fun of me because I, I like these shorter shorts better. But I, I used to play rugby. It's a really good rugby player. Ah. And everybody has those like shorts that go down to you past your knees. It's like, yeah. I feel like you're gonna trip wearing those things. And I'm like, oh, it's, <laughs> I'll take a couple bad jokes and wear my short shorts. <laughs> nice. <laughs> They're not Daisy Dukes. <laughs> this is true.